0: There's something to be said, of course, about being in a position where you're empowered, where you're given sort of the air cover to go and build and to learn and create a team, create a new way of doing things where there's dialogue and there's no firm top-down direction on how something needs to be done. And then you co-create
1: Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show, so if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, My call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. You know, like, don't you ever think back to parts in your career, meetings that you acted in, or like things that you you would recognize now, patterns that you didn't otherwise recognize in moments where you're like, I can't believe I didn't see that. Like, I can't believe I didn't pick up on that. Or I can't believe I didn't see the cues for this hire or this mishire or whatever it was, where now it's really obvious to you. Yeah. Do you experience that or am yeah. I just projecting? No, no,
0: no, no, it happens. <laughs> okay,
1: well, that's how I feel about podcast episodes. I think back to 30, 40 episodes ago and I'm like, oh, I've gotten better. Then that's good. Yeah. You know, even now when people are like, you should be a podcaster for the rest of your career. And I'm like, man, if podcasting is not like a footnote of my career, then I haven't done anything. Like I haven't pushed the boundaries in the way that I want to with myself in my career.
0: That's fair, but you know your podcasts help inform so many people and that storytelling changes so many people's perspectives and shares so many people's experiences that you should not let it be just a footnote. So I hope you go on to do absolutely everything mm-hmm. your heart desires, mm-hmm. but you shouldn't consider it this a footnote.
1: You, you, you think that is undermining the experience if I say it's a footnote?
0: Yeah, because maybe you don't realize the impact that it has on people, is maybe what I'm thinking.
1: Maybe my point is, it's like a business podcast. I'm not changing the world here.
0: You bring personal stories to people, and inspiration goes a long, long way. And you have no idea who's listening to it, what they're thinking, how you made their day. Storytelling is super powerful. So.
1: Do you ever think about that for yourself?
0: For myself yeah which you is, do? yeah i do it doesn't mean that i've always known how to execute on it but yeah i think storytelling sharing your experiences that's how i've learned and so uh, why not <laughs>
1: but couldn't i say the same for you about well archino when you were at ibm and you were like whatever building amazing technology in data centers that was virtualizing the world and then that made you know companies so much more efficient you'd have been like yeah that's great but I have more to give. Is that my ceiling? You know, I just (laughs) get this overwhelming feeling of I have more that I want to give.
0: Yes, that you should always have, no matter what. I think that's a good feeling, that's a great feeling. But see, I wouldn't consider IBM a footnote, ever.
1: What would Mm. you consider it?
0: A foundational experience. It was something that taught me so much, so much. I mean, seeing a company, it's international business machines, but seeing that machine work, And starting in a research lab with an idea that then makes it into customer data centers, just that process as honestly, your first working experience, just tremendous. I owe so much to that experience and the mentors and my perspective of what it was to be a developer all started there in that lab.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. What does IBM stand for?
0: International business machine. Does
1: everybody know that except for me? I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. Okay, based on your reaction, everybody knows that.
0: I don't know. It's everybody because knows I, IBM, it's, it's become sort of household name now. It's such a brand, a, a, a wonderful brand. So,
1: yeah. uh, oh, man. All right. Well, when you were there, I assume you did a great job. And weren't people encouraging you yes. to keep doing that? To keep doubling down on that? track of your career yeah and if you had listened to that advice then do you think you would be where you are today
0: strangely enough it was the ibm experience that helped me be here where i am today because again just sort of starting at a research lab and seeing an idea go from a whiteboard into a product i realized how much i didn't know about how the entire life cycle of that product worked. There was a development team in Hursley. There were different teams in Tucson that were doing testing, packaging teams, documentation teams. The whole world was just moving. There was an orchestration that was happening that I did not understand. I just stood on the sidelines and I viewed it. And I said, I want to be part of that. I want to be part of going outside this lab and productive advertising things. And that took me to business school.
1: I guess I was supposed to welcome you to the show and get started, but we've already gotten started. So welcome.
0: Thank you, Jubin. Thanks for having me I'm here.
1: glad to have you here. You said that we're in the Kleiner office. It's been 10 years, maybe, since we missed recruiting you in some portfolio company at some <laughs> point. Maybe we'll get another shot, maybe, maybe. But until then, welcome back. It's great to have you.
0: Thank you. It's good to be here.
1: I'm super excited. I start all these things the same way, so I'm just going to read your background to you. We've already touched on some of it, so I'm going to rehash a bit of it, and then I have a lot of questions, pretty much unlimited. So until we run out of time, I'm just going to keep asking you questions. Let's do it. You got your degree in computer science at the University of Illinois, and then uh, you went to IBM, and you were an engineer there for four years, right? That's what we just talked about. Then you went to Harvard. You got your MBA. Did two years of that. Then you went to theladders.com, Ladders? Is it just ladders? ladders
0: Theladders.com, yeah.
1: You were the director of Corp Dev for two years, then the vice president of analytics for four years. And then you went to Atlassian. You spent seven years there. Yes. Seven or eight almost. Yeah. Crazy run. Head of data science and growth marketing. That was in 2013. Three years of that. Then the head of enterprise and cloud. You did four years of that. And as of March of 2020, you became the CMO of Airtable.
0: That is correct.
1: You also sit... On the boards of both MongoDB and Zendesk. Yes. I don't know how you do all this stuff. Where did you grow up?
0: A mix of places. Some part of my childhood was in Liberia, West Africa, and then I moved to India.
1: So when people ask what your ethnicity is, how do you answer? Indian. Okay. Yeah. Did you move with mom and dad?
0: Yes, kind of. What do you mean? So I moved in the midst of a civil war. So I left the country, technically evacuated. My dad got me on a flight that was leaving. So I didn't technically leave with them, but then they found us again and and met us in Togo. And after that, the family moved to India.
1: What do you mean he found you a flight?
0: He couldn't leave at that time. My mom was in the hospital and I was having a little brother. And so they couldn't get on a flight, but they had to get the other kids, me and my sister, off into a safe place and so they just got us on a flight and had us leave.
1: It was you and your sister, your parents. Your mother was pregnant with your soon-to-be brother.
0: Correct. And I had a younger sister who was too young to leave with me as well. And so four of them stayed back and two of us got the, on a flight. Th- the <laughs> three, the three of them
1: and then the half stayed <laughs> three back. Three and a half. And then when you say dad puts you on a flight, is this a United flight? Or is this, what are we talking yeah, here? It
0: was a commercial airline. It was a airline, commercial airline. But, but we knew that the airports were going to soon shut down. And so it was just get on a flight and get out of here to we figure out when we can join you
1: and tell me how far off this is but there's two striking images that I have from recent memory of like people fleeing countries both in the Middle East and in Eastern Europe is it like that like the images that I saw from Afghanistan and Iraq and that kind of thing No. what was it like tell me more
0: it was much more controlled there were still a number of flights leaving. it was earlier
1: still it 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 was before things got bad
0: things were pretty bad but if I'm not mistaken, the airports were open for another four days after I left, uh, and so there were people trying to evacuate, there were not too many people with the means to evacuate as well, and so there's a mix of different things. Certainly the images I've seen in recent past on TV are, are way scarier than I remember it, mm-hmm. but what I remember was scary enough.
1: <laughs> how old were you? Twelve. And how old was your sister? Fifteen. What's your sister's name? Preeti. Preeti. Yeah. Okay. so you show up in togo
0: yes extended Uh, family was there my mom's brother was there okay so
1: they like met you at the airport
0: something like that yeah yes they also were trying to help in their own ways and and were trying to fly into the country it was a big mess but yes i had extended family there who got me from the airport into safety at home and i just waited there till my parents could join
1: can i keep asking
0: please
1: i don't know how serious the liberian civil war was But when your dad put you on the plane, did he say, like, goodbye?
0: No, I don't think he said goodbye.
1: Like, you expected to see him again? I did. Okay.
0: I did expect to see him again. Maybe I didn't know any better at 12 about what can go wrong, but I very well expected to see them again. Which you did. I did it okay, in okay. four days. So, it,
1: it, and then, so they left, I guess, the last day that you could get out of the country?
0: Yes, because I remember there was shutdowns after that and open, reopening shutdowns, reopening shutdowns, then started chaos.
1: And did your mom have the kid?
0: Yes. So my brother was four days old when he got on his first flight.
1: So basically the day you left was the day your brother was born. Yes. Is that right?
0: That is correct.
1: And then four days in, he got on a plane to Togo?
0: Yes. (laughs) so It's incredible.
1: That is incredible. (laughs) Yeah. And then you went to India. I did. And you did your high school. Correct. In India.
0: I did. Yes.
1: Along with your siblings.
0: Yes. So that's when the family moved. We never, dad made occasional trips, but we didn't go back to Liberia and that was our permanent move to India.
1: And then how the hell did you end up in America for college?
0: Yeah, did undergrad in India in computer engineering and definitely wanted to do more, which is why I I came to the US at that point to pursue my graduate degree.
1: What was conversation like for you all at the dinner table? What did you guys talk about?
0: (laughs) At which point? It always changes. (laughs) You pick. Conversation, it was interesting. I mean, to think about parents who had always brought up their kids in areas where they felt they had to be overprotective, conversation of telling them that I wanted to leave and come to the United States to pursue a graduate degree were interesting ones. So here's another interesting tidbit. I'm the only person I know who came to grad school with my dad because he couldn't fathom the idea of getting me to leave home alone and face grad school all by myself so he came with
1: you yes like the first day of school
0: like my entire time at Urbana Champaign I stayed off campus with my dad
1: he lived he moved here
0: correct to effectively be with me and
1: did you resent that did you want your independence fiercely or were you so grateful
0: Oh, at that time? Yeah. I mean, this is change in perspective, right? Yeah, (laughs) uh, At that time, I fiercely wanted my own independence. Yeah, you felt like
1: it was way too protective. Oh my
0: God, definitely. And now I could not be more grateful. And when I think about his upbringing and what he thought was normal and how he let all of those stereotypes go away just so that his daughter could pursue what she wanted to, I am so grateful he did what he did.
1: And do you have kids now?
0: I do. I have a daughter.
1: Would you ever do that with your daughter?
0: I don't think so, but not because I, I think because I've grown up with a different frame of reference than he did.
1: In the States, basically. It's a very yeah. different culture. Yeah,
0: it's a very different culture. I'm I'm not like worried about his safety at every instance. I'm not I haven't been grown up with ideas of what one gender does versus the other. So I don't have any of those so so, so for
1: for how many years was he in the states
0: till my younger sister could join me when she started her sort of undergrad and so he was here with me
1: what did your mom think
0: they sort of divided and conquered and they're now together and i'm so sure that they're so grateful the kids are all set and doing their own things and they don't have to parent in the way they did
1: wow that's incredible it is but like at the time you're like in the United States, you had just left India. I don't mm-hmm. think you were getting bad grades, like I imagine you were doing just fine. Yes. School actually. probably came pretty easy to you, given what I know. And you know you're coming home to dad, yes. no matter what. Yes. <laughs> you had a drink, you had two drinks, you're thinking, oh, oh boy.
0: <laughs> well, I, I think coming home to dad made sure I wasn't having two drinks.
1: <laughs> I was told to ask you. Oh dear. <laughs> What time did you send your first email this morning?
0: Okay. <laughs> Pretty early. I'm a very early riser. So it's got to be someone who works closely with me that knows that Archana gets up at absurd times.
1: What time did you send? You, come on, tell me the truth. What time do you think your first email was today?
0: I don't know, maybe around five-ish. five ish. Yeah. Five? And
1: what time was your last email sent last night?
0: Uh, it, it, it was a late night, but <laughs> what time? Uh, I, I probably wrapped up. Uh, that's hard to think about. Maybe
1: 9ish. Cameron said that you're going to deny. Cameron Deech your who's the CRO of Atlassian, who was uh, I think helped bring you on board. Yes. He said you would deny that you don't sleep, but he's like don't let her say that. She doesn't sleep. She doesn't.
0: <laughs> oh, I do sleep. He says she
1: doesn't sleep.
0: See, now, now, I know Cam- Cameron's actually had, I don't know, on one of his podcasts shown that he gets a good eight hours. I don't know if I can compete with that, but.
1: You know how there is all these studies around sleep that have now pretty conclusively said that 99 point something percent of people absolutely need seven to nine hours of sleep. Yeah. I actually think you might be the outlier. Do you agree? You don't need that much sleep, do you? I don't. You function perfectly on three hours or nine hours
0: I don't know but I, not, not for an elongated period of time but if I had to pull off a, a short night I can easily do it for a little bit of a stretch and then I'm sure I need to catch up as well but <laughs> I've been pretty okay
1: and by the way I am not trying to glorify the idea that yeah. not getting good sleep is good
0: that is not good
1: <laughs> I just don't actually given all the things that I know about you I don't think you need sleep <laughs> I
0: I, I've too. i
1: i really don't like I, I think you have 18 hours of productivity in a day it's I, unbelievable
0: <laughs> no i i i very much endorse a good night's sleep makes the next day way better all right
1: you heard it here first does your team i mean no one on your team can keep up with you like that right
0: no, they don't they, they they totally can keep up with me. It's hard to keep up with my team. Okay, but they're
1: not <laughs> they don't feel pressure at 5 to respond to you.
0: No. No. See, that's an important part of the way I work, which is I want to work when I'm most productive, working when I can work. And it in fact maybe restricts me a little bit to be in very firm times. So if I needed to take a couple hours and come out and have a different and from my usual routine. I feel very comfortable doing that and feel very comfortable when I go back home if I had to send an email later in the evening that the people who I choose to send it to know that they don't need to be responsive to it. I also, of course, take good advantage of all the little widgets we have in terms of scheduling stuff, Mm. so.
1: Like what kind of widgets?
0: You can schedule, send your emails at a particular time. Oh, oh you I see what you're saying. can send your slacks at a particular point in time. So,
1: so you send them during reasonable hours, you're saying? Yeah. Why did you choose to get an MBA rather than stay an engineer? What in you motivated you? I think about your culture, the Indian culture, is similar to Persian culture, which is that it's more regal to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer than it is to be a business person. Would you agree with that?
0: Uh, yes. Okay.
1: So what changed?
0: I think some part, maybe even my upbringing, that there was no expectation around it. Like even if that I became an engineer, was my parents were extremely surprised that I wanted to pursue it. There was no pressure on their end to pursue it. And so I didn't have any preset notions of what is sort of more eagle to be or what would be a better fit. Once I had a sense of what it was like to be a developer, I thoroughly enjoyed my four years at IBM. I really, really, really enjoyed it. But maybe it gave me the perspective that I felt there was so much more to learn. I wanted to get out of the research lab. I wanted to understand how businesses are built. And I couldn't imagine a better place to go and do that than business school. Very sort of traditional view of business school, which is, I have what I believe is a narrow perspective. I want to step out and see how much I can widen
1: it. This idea of, I think of it as breadth versus depth, is patterned everywhere. And you actually give a quote somewhere. You said, I think it's such a tremendous power in someone's career to be able to flex between different functions. And marketing gives you the ability to do that. Can you just tell me more about this idea of wanting to go broader rather than deeper on a specific thing?
0: It's maybe very similar to what we started with our conversation with, where you talked about hosting this podcast and then you talked about, well, there's so much more beyond. And I think to some extent, that's how I've just looked at any particular position. And I think anyone can at any particular position that they are at. And now that there's so much more beyond, I'm just curious to go and check it out. I want to understand. I want to learn a little bit more. And I think that's what took me from engineering to analytics, post-business school, that's very closely related. So I also believe in leveraging your strengths clearly, and I didn't wear too far off from my roots in engineering. But then from analytics into marketing, we are the route of a very data-driven go-to-market company. And so they're all very linked in that way but the breadth has certainly allowed me to experience so much more and get such a broader perspective of how these businesses are built
1: i have also heard that it would be very very easy for you to build a career in somewhere like a goldman sachs or a procter and gamble and just be the managing director of these places like you have all of the tools in your tool belt in your arsenal to be able to build what is like a traditional career and I was surprised to hear a few folks were a bit surprised that you, given all of the well-roundedness that you have, you're looking at me anxious, like I'm going to say something. That you-
0: I'm like, who's telling you these things?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that you keep joining these like pretty risky, crazy high growth, super ambitious, very volatile tech companies. What's up with that?
0: Just follow your passion. Simple. I don't know whether they shared this story with you, whoever you've been speaking to, but I was such a big Jira and Confluence user before joining Atlassian that I cold wrote to the president of the company, Jay Simons, and said, I want to join and I want to help grow the company. And it was the love for the product and what they were doing that just sparked something. And it was such an amazing decision to join Atlassian, by the way, just such a tremendous company. And I think even the move to Airtable is just passion, interest. What they're trying to do, it intrigues me and I want to be part of that mission.
1: Jay and I were messaging this morning and, and uh, <laughs> he said that you're the best cold inbound hire he's ever made in his entire <laughs> life. <laughs>
0: Well, he's very kind, but yes, I was definitely an inbound cold email.
1: Can you you elucidate that for me? You were using Jira. Yeah. And you just love the product. And you were a VP of analytics at a pretty legit company with a pretty legit job. And you just emailed Jay and said, I love the product and I want to be a part of this ride.
0: Effectively, yes. So I was moving. I knew I was moving to California. My, my husband was taking on a role here. He's an investor and was moving from New York to California. And when I thought about coming back to the Bay Area, because my original job in IBM wasn't the Bay Area. So I knew I was coming to such a wonderful place for lots of opportunity. But then what can you choose when you've given so much opportunity? Clearly something that you can get behind and something you love that was Jira for me that was Jira and Comfort. I didn't even I mean quite candidly didn't even know they were built by a company called Atlassian so I still, I actually went and did that bit of research figured that the company was founded in Australia and I was like ah oh, this is not a bay area company but then learned that they had a go to market office headquartered here in uh, San Francisco and I said let's give this
1: And shot. how did you like choose Jay to email He's just the most senior title you could find in the Bay Area. Yeah,
0: he's like, who, who runs the San Francisco and he office? And responded to you. Yes, he did. <laughs> uh, after several weeks, by the way, when you chat again with him, he'll tell you, oh, they were planning their annual event and so on and so forth. So he'll admit he was several weeks late in responding to me. But then one fine day, I, I hear from him and the rest is history.
1: <laughs> I was told that... <laughs>
0: You enjoy doing this, right? (laughs) I do. I do
1: enjoy doing the research. I do. I really, really do. I was told that you were hired in with the most ridiculous title. They just hired you. Is this true? It was like a head of... Funnel science or something? That,
0: that is what Cameron suggested. And I was like, no way, not, not happening.
1: <laughs> but you went with it. You didn't do uh, it.
0: No, I, that, that's when it went to the head of data science and growth marketing. And we, we decided we'd go that down that route. But it was, <laughs> that was certainly Cameron's idea.
1: Oh, man. They just found a job for you.
0: Yeah, I, I spoke to a different set of folks within uh, Atlassian itself. Joe introduced me to a number of different teams and effectively crafted the role. Uh, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that.
1: I asked them, then what? I was told that you just absolutely took off, that you were going toe to toe with any manager and any engineer. Cameron was saying that it's absolutely crazy that he hired you at Atlassian because he really should have been working for you. He's like, uh, she's just so much better than me is what he said. And uh, <laughs> you're shaking your head. So
0: he's Because he, he's so incredibly kind, but he will always, he'll never take credit for the way he's helped shape so many Atlassians, myself included. There's something to be said, of course, about being in a position where you're empowered, where you're given sort of the air cover to go and build and to learn and create a team, create a new way of doing things where there's dialogue and there's no firm top-down direction on how something needs to be done. And then you co-create. And that was Atlassian for me. It was all about co-creation. And that's what I then, of course, would credit Cameron for being able to create an environment like that.
1: I've heard that. You have this insane ability. I call it dolphining. And it's something that many CEOs I've seen have. Dolphining is like uh, the ability to be at 10,000 feet and then 1,000 feet, like as fast as a dolphin can go up and down. I've heard that even at four in the morning, it seems to be a theme, you're <laughs> checking people's sequel reports and giving them feedback on it. That's the level of detail that you're going into. Is that true?
0: Not anymore. But way back then, that was how I had to sort of build what we built in Atlassian. Why? Because we were really building the analytics infrastructure from ground up, really starting with a very very blank new page and learning so much about the business, learning about what was scaling, what was working, what wasn't working, and it required that level of depth. And they let me do it. So
1: <laughs> I've heard. I like starting with I've heard. I, I know. know, I know everything. <laughs>
0: everything stops.
1: <laughs> <laughs> The reason that I do this research is because you would never say this stuff. I have to find it out because you're modest. You're one of these managers that makes you feel, makes everyone else feel like a bad manager because of how much time and effort and like how good you are. So I've heard things like the roadmaps that you put together for your teams, the times that you spend in reviews with people, wanting to like make them better, something along the lines of like psychological programs to help them make sure that they're happy. All these crazy, amazing, over-the-top managerial things.
0: None of it was original. I just learned from really, really good people around me.
1: (laughs) What's the what's the psyche program? What's that?
0: Depends on who told you that part. (laughs) Cameron. Okay. No, I I think uh, (laughs) not HR. (laughs) No, I've spent a lot of time in things around I, I wouldn't call them psychological programs, but really understanding the makeup of teams. Because we all have our areas of strength. And we all work in very, very multifaceted roles. So I don't know about other people. I'm certainly not an A-plus in absolutely every dimension I wish I could be. But with my team and those around me, the people that I hire, and if I can actually hire folks that I can learn from as well as a unit, I can guarantee we'll be an A-plus unit. And so being able to understand... My strengths and weaknesses, what I need to hire for areas that I want others to lean in, things that I know like the back of my hand, and I'm there at all points in time versus new avenues for me. That's how I think about the makeup of the teams. And so it's really about as a unit now, if you were to profile us, what are our strengths and weaknesses and how do we need to grow as a team? And that's how I think about it.
1: What are some weaknesses that you think you have? that you round out with other people who have the opposite? I guess those are their strengths.
0: I think, and some of them are subject area uh, weaknesses, like creative, like I'm not Mm -hmm. a designer. Mm -hmm. That's not my background, right? And so when I get into hiring part of the team, while I'm not a designer, I have the most amazing creative directors uh, sort of next to me helping, ideating things like that. So some of them are skill oriented. Others are folks that balance my own personality as well, which can be to, as you said, dolphin in in different (laughs) points in time. And I make sure that they're dolphining along with me and providing air cover to the teams at that time. And so some of it is working styles. Some of it is skill based.
1: It's incredible. You have, uh, and this has been corroborated by many, so you can't disprove this, but you have basically, you and your team have built entire categories of software in Atlassian for attribution, lead scoring, web nurturing, PLG analytics. I heard it got to the point where you have this supernatural gift of either already knowing the answer or knowing exactly how to get to the answer quicker than normal humans should. And it became a bit of a game to try and stump you.
0: (laughs) fun <laughs>
1: Is that true? That's some super genius stuff.
0: No, you see it's where we started from. Now, one thing that they while like Why? Give
1: me an example of something someone trying to stump you.
0: No, it's you see it was hard to do because when you get in on day day one effectively and I was there, definitely not there day one of Atlassian but of building sort of the toolkit that we had for marketing analytics or measurement or whatever yeah. it is. It's hard then when you've set the foundations, you've built it, you've scaled it, you're supposed to know where to get all the answers from. I actually think about my time at Airtable a little bit like that as well. When I joined, there wasn't a marketing team and now I've built the marketing team. And so no matter what someone asks me, I kind of know the answer. I know where to get the answer. And I've been very fortunate actually in both of these roles to be able to get started and that is such an incredible advantage
1: do you ever play dumb
0: not intentionally (laughs)
1: no no I guess two things if you always know the answers doesn't that get frustrating for others number one number two if you always know the answers and you say it does that take away the opportunity for your team to go discover the answer and the learnings that come from that discovery process that's what I mean by play dumb
0: no, so actually it goes back to what I said, right? Getting a team that actually complements you. So I don't know the answer. Where my team is concerned, more often than not, we're all teaching each other. We're learning from each other. And I think one of the lessons I've learned is sort of like success is not formulaic, right? So what worked for one product in Atlassian didn't necessarily work for the next. And what worked for Atlassian probably doesn't work for table, And so... It has been such a learning journey. So when I said I don't intentionally play dumb, I actually don't know the answers in many cases. I've just been afforded the opportunity to learn and discover and build on that. And so where the team is concerned, that's exactly the kind of group that I've brought together are people with a similar DNA of wanting to learn and discover, but who spike at very different skills and who can bring their A plus game to sort of the team mix.
1: Can I ask for your honest reflection of a period of time at Atlassian? There was a time, probably a couple of years before you left, where they were adding free trials. It was basically becoming a free freemium model, getting away from seven-day credit card trials. The way that it was framed to me was like, you're basically changing the entire business model of a public company. And you were like right in the middle of it. I heard that without knowing the data there was people that were supremely confident in one direction and others that were supremely confident in the other direction and then it was up to you to use data to prove one or the other can you just tell me about that time and your involvement in it and how was that and
0: yeah when you are making such a large change when you're Marketing motions are all leaning towards some assumptions and then you are completely changing what those assumptions are. Definitely gnarly. It it wasn't an easy decision. Two things I'd uh, sort of put there. Atlassian's got a very, very open mind to making large changes, like transformative large changes. If there's a company that you feel comfortable making those large swings at it is Atlassian and they do in most cases with very deep experimentation. So you never feel like you're going in without actually understanding Mm -hmm. the impact of those changes. That's one. The second, and you'll see that Airtable is my third founder-run company, is I have so much faith in the vision that the founders tend to have, which is true even in Atlassian and the movement to go towards free trials and innovate on the go-to-market and the distribution model of the company. That faith allows me to take a lot more latitude with my experimentation and making a case for it because that's sort of part of the culture. So I don't know if I answered the question correctly, but it just didn't feel as much pressure, honestly, that I could imagine you would think, oh my God, a public company making this large change. No, it was well-considered. It was well-experimented. It was done with a lot of support of the founders, a lot of their direction. That's fertile ground for learning how to do those things.
1: At the end of your seven-year run at Atlassian, you left as the head of pretty much all atlassian products jira confluence bitbucket service desk trello ops genie status page really incredible amazing run what was your lowest point at the company
0: at atlassian
1: yeah what's the first thing that comes to your head
0: i mean it's public information i think it was when uh, we sold HipChat. i mean it turned i, I had you were losing to slack uh, when, when the company partnered with Slack, sold HipChat, yes. And we decided to get out of the messaging market. And, and I hesitated when you said, what's the lowest point? Because Trust Atlassian to sort of, it, it's been a very good outcome for Atlassian, the customers that made that transition. So it's maybe unfair for me to say, hey, it's all my lowest point, because it was a good outcome ultimately, and the right thing to do. But it, was hard. Why? Because there was a lot invested in trying to make it successful. With with my team, with advertising, with there was a rebranding effort. There was a lot that uh, we did in in, in customer success.
1: Did it feel like you gave up on it a little bit?
0: No. No. I I know we put our best foot uh, forward and we did right by the sort of when you think about the overall portfolio and where we needed to pay attention. Yeah, but I think you can
1: armchair expert that now pretty easily.
0: It was emotional for sure. I mean, at that point in time, you want to finish the job you started, but at the same time, it, it made sense. It made sense, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't disappointing.
1: Yeah. How'd you find Airtable? Tell me you cold emailed someone,
0: <laughs> please. No, I did not cold email, but uh, Ali Rogani, who, who is the head of Y Combinator, introduced me to Howie, just sort of as an informational exchange. And one thing led to the other, and here I am.
1: In 30 seconds or less, can you tell the audience, what does Airtable do?
0: Airtable is an application platform that allows companies and teams to modernize their processes and build workflows. It's uh, used by a very non-technical audience, and so it's a no-code, low-code application platform.
1: It's used by a... Large audience everywhere, technical and non-technical. Serves over 300,000 customers, 80% of the Fortune 500, including IBM, Hulu, and Netflix. Founded in 2012 by Howie and a few other guys. Raised over $1.4 billion in funding over nine rounds. Latest round was in December of 2021. Series F, led by Salesforce and Silver Lake. Put the company at over $11 billion valuation. Insane. Holy hell. That round was raised in December. Good time to raise a big round. Yes, tell you what. I was
0: led by XN, yes. Oh, it was. Okay.
1: Yeah. Good time to raise a big round. From the public comps that I could see, it's like doing 100 million plus ARR, growing 70% year over year. Let me repeat great time to raise that round. One of my first questions was why is it interesting that Airtable acts like a spreadsheet, but is powered by a relational database? What does that mean for someone dumb, like me? Explain that to me normally.
0: So the acts like a spreadsheet is perhaps the easy to start, not intimidating. Yes. It is familiar to you so you can get started, yes. right? That, that's the acts like yes. a spreadsheet part of it. But it is a relational database and all applications are built on databases. And so it brings with it the power to do so much more. And to allow people to effectively craft entirely new workflows and processes. So in its simplest form, and because I'm a recovering developer, I can say this, in the simplest form, any application has a data model. That's the relational database allows you to create a data model for anything, maybe an event, maybe recruitment, maybe your marketing campaigns, whatever they might be. And then... We make it very simple for someone like you and me who may not know how to code to build logic over it. Simple point and click integrations or automations, whatever helps you decide what to do with the data that you have. And then you can, again, drag and drop and decide how your front end of your application should look at. So at the core of it, it gives you data, it gives you logic, and it gives you an interface. And voila, it helps you and me build applications where we don't want to go and buy something that's a third-party application or uh, we want something that's very custom.
1: It does. It literally helps me. I use it. And, you do? And it, yeah. And it's, uh, it's very modular. That's how I would describe it.
0: How do you use it?
1: One of the primary use cases that I have for Airtable, I track a CIO database, a large set of CIOs that I work very closely with. I map my relationship status To them to know when was the last time we met them have we met them are they green yellow or red where did we meet them what did we talk about that kind of thing and that's shared amongst teams that's how I use it there's so many possible use cases that it's almost frustrating when someone's like Archana like what do you do like at a family event and then you say and they're like well what can you use it for and you're like anything and they're like okay I get it. It becomes hard to position yourself when you don't have all of the information for how they would potentially use it. And I imagine that's a unique challenge for a marketer.
0: It is. It definitely is. is. It's very fair. But in that challenge, as you said, lies the beauty. Because some part of my job and what I hope Airtable accomplishes, what I'm here partnering with them to accomplish is the original mission of democratizing software creation. And that message is so horizontal, right? If you wanted to empower everyone at the front lines to be able to build their own software, now that's so worth it. But it's also important for us to be able to simplify that message to make it more relatable to folks. So instead of approaching a marketer or an event manager with, oh, why don't you democratize software? It then becomes my job to be able to show them how they could actually use Airtable for their use case and how we could actually do that across multiple different use cases to inspire people to get started more easily and understand how their peers or companies in their positions have used Airtable.
1: What day was your first day of work at Airtable?
0: Ooh, March 18th, 2020, the day we went shelter in place. In the day of. The day off. Yes.
1: What the hell was that day like?
0: Oh, I remember having to meet Howie at the benchmark offices because they had shut down the Airtable office in uh, San Francisco. I was quite miserable about not having had a chance to go into the Atlassian offices as well because those had shut down as well to tell people by the previous week. I remember driving down and getting one of those emergency messages saying that we were going shelter in place. And I kid you not, my first thought was, should I meet Howie or maybe try to go buy Whole Foods first (laughs) and see whether I need anything for home? It was scary. I mean, I had come from, as you know, a long tenure and felt very comfortable in my skin in Atlassian. And... There was too much that was new at Airtable. Not only was it a new product, new company, new, but the working style I knew was going to change. My child was going to be home with me. (laughs) There was all sorts of new stuff that I feel like the first week was a haze.
1: When things like that hit you in the face sequentially, you wake up, shelter in place, You go, you meet your new boss in the benchmark office. Then you realize you have to get food before the grocery store gets ransacked. Then you realize your kid's at home, not going to school. You need to take care of the child. You also obviously have incredible ambition for your career. So you want to do a great job. You have a small team that needs to grow. So you have to do that. Do you go into problem solving mode? What is your initial instinct to do When that happens?
0: Problem solving mode, definitely. I move very quickly to make decisions and get things into as stable a place as I possibly can. And yeah, so that's the first instinct. But it was a lot at that time. I never recommend switching a job in a situation like that. It's just that we didn't know that that was around the corner, of course.
1: What does problem solving mode mean? So you meet with Howie, then you go to Whole Foods? What did you do for your daughter? How did you do it?
0: Yeah, come up with a schedule, come up with a plan. I mean, I'm fortunate that she's old enough. She's now 10, so back then 8, where she's somewhat independent. So help her understand when I need to be on meetings. And everyone was giving everyone space in those days. I think it was a very supportive work environment to begin with, so... Undoubtedly, very fortunate. But there were things that needed to be tackled. There was simple day-to-day things, the support structure that one builds around themselves just crumbled. There was things like elderly parents, not sure how things work out for them. So taking one thing at a time and tackling it, certainly.
1: A little less sleep for you, which is hard to believe at that point. (laughs) Um, I've heard you say... Working from home or sleeping at work, it's hard to tell some days. What do you mean by that?
0: <laughs> Did I say that? Yeah, because it was round the clock. I mean, the, the reality is, yes, work was intense and I have my own ambitions and I wanted to learn a lot about the company. But it's not like if I clocked off of work, I was not working, right? I was working around figuring out my daughter's homework. If I clocked off of that, it wasn't that I was not working. I was figuring out about how to keep the house maintained, how to get those meals. And so it was a constant cycle, a never ending (laughs) cycle. Fortunately, that's behind Mm -hmm. us. But that's what it it is. And it was work all the time. At at that time, I was very new. I I needed to know what I needed to know. If you remember those early days, also, everyone hunkered down onto the jobs that they had. I wasn't so sure I'd be able to hire anybody.
1: Right. (laughs) Things froze for three months. Yeah. Completely froze.
0: Completely froze, and every business also took a pause to understand what does this mean for us. Mm-hmm. And so, uncertainty was just about in every dimension of life at the same time.
1: Did you go home? Well, I say go uh, home. Go Did home. You, yeah, yeah exactly. I, I was at home. <laughs> like go to your go to your room with your husband. Just be like, oh, shit. Did I take on too much?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Just overwhelming.
0: Yes, I was overwhelmed.
1: And your parents were in India. Yeah. Where it was not nearly as... That was even scarier, I imagine.
0: Yes, till we learned enough of what was going on. It was the idea that it was going to affect the elderly so much more. And my parents are there. My husband's parents are there. Right. They're alone. All the kids have moved on to do their own things. In and you can't just
1: go fly there and take care of
0: them. I can't head out in a flight. And for months after that, going... First of all, it was not possible to travel for a bit there. But even when it was, you didn't know whether you were opening them to even more risk by doing that. And you probably remember India got very, very, very messy at some point in time. It was just a
1: crowded place.
0: Yeah, And so I'm so grateful that I I believe we are out of that zone right now that I'm able to sit here in an office. and Isn't it special? Doesn't (laughs) it make make it so much nicer though, like (laughs) doing this? It makes it very, very very nice, yes. Which is why I'm
1: so insistent on we have to. Like we have to do this in person. When life throws too much at you... Is there anything that you do to escape, to give yourself space? I also go into problem-solving mode. Like, it's just a checklist. And what makes me feel good is, like, checking it off. And it probably comes from my childhood similar to how it probably comes from your childhood. When there's things that you can't control as a child, you crave control. And so checking things off of a list is a very easy way to be like, yep, 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 yep. But you can't keep doing that forever. Otherwise, it will kill you. Do you have any outlets, escapes, things that you do, books, workouts, meditations, anything? Or is it literally just as hard as you can go until you break through?
0: It's actually family time for me. It really grounds me. And I think that...
1: Like where you're present. Where you're very present.
0: Yes. Or where they help me be very present because I actually need to (laughs) work on it. Like I went into this most amazing period of playing lots of board games after work, no matter what time it was, like 7 or 7.30 or 8 before my daughter goes to bed, we would play board games one after the other or just take some time out together as a family. And that helps make it all very real. And they have this remarkable way of making everything else seem not important. Kids. Yeah, kids, kids. But my husband does too. It just makes you realize that everything else is all under control.
1: Do you struggle being present in general?
0: I have a hard time compartmentalizing compared to others that I've seen. I've seen very good models of that where people can just shut down and they walk into the other room and... They're in a new space. It takes me time to to wind down. My first two days of a vacation are unwinding, right. <laughs> as an example, and so it takes me time to unwind.
1: I'm the same way. When I go on vacation, the first couple of days, people ask me like, "What's wrong? What's going on?" And it's because I'm still not past the place that I'm missing something, or like that I'm unbundling all of the muscles that have been so tense. And so then it's three days of that. Even if I'm not really looking at it, it's just tight. I feel the same way on Fridays. I don't know if you experienced that as well, but like Friday afternoon comes around and the most anxious and least present that I am in a given week, it's Friday afternoon. When work is winding down, but I feel like it shouldn't be, that there's still things to do, but my head is going somewhere else. And so from like Friday at three, four till dinner, i'm unwinding my body is unwinding it's like my mini vacation the first two days of my vacation is like the first four hours of my weekend do you ever feel that
0: i don't feel that on fridays i have to be uh, no i don't feel that to me like when i put off the last zoom meeting on friday i'm like zoom's done (laughs) to me that's a big that's a big marker
1: (laughs) you mentioned this earlier but this is your third time working for a founder-led company Well, first of all, like we're sitting in Kleiner's office, like we invest in founders, we keep our founders in the seat. There's a reason for that. There is a reality distortion field that is necessary for a founder to be successful. Some have it stronger than others. And I've been told that no matter who has it, however strongly it is, you have a way of just cutting straight through it. And it's almost like making their vision practical is the way that I've interpreted it. So I had Emily Troy, who's the CEO of Coinbase. Do you know Emily?
0: I've heard of she's I not know her. She's amazing. And
1: the way that you were described kind of reminds me of her, which is that she's translating Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase's extravagant vision into the bits, bytes, and parts that we can start to consume today to start to make that a reality. Do you think that's fair?
0: I think that's fair. And I think that excites me. So that's why I think it's so fair. Like when you think about, hey, Arch, you know, you're the third founder and company. Do you want to go and found your own company? Are are you an entrepreneur? I, I, I don't know that I am, but I love their vision. Or when I find one that I like the shape of it, I want to help participate in that journey of building it out and making it real and seeing it. Quarter by quarter, there's an allure to it,
1: isn't there? Isn't it hard though? Isn't like, and I work with founders all day long. It's not easy. No, it's
0: not easy. But they're trying to do hard things, so I wouldn't expect it to be easy. I'm assuming, even all the founders that you work with, they have grand visions and they want to make a change. They want to leave the companies to leave a legacy behind, right? So that's hard. And our worlds are moving so fast. I think one of your earlier questions was still choosing sort of these volatile, high-growth companies. But that's the alert to it as well, which is, can you actually make a change? Can you be part of a transformation? Can you do something different? Can you make the rules instead of playing by rules that have been preset? And that's the fun part.
1: Let me ask you a hypothetical. Yeah. Let's say that tomorrow... Howie stepped down and Jubin became the CEO. Okay, terrible example. Some, somebody way more qualified than Jubin, but some professional CEO or like Peloton, like what just happened with them? Like their founder had to step down and that does the allure then wear off a little bit for you?
0: No, definitely not. I'll give you a very real example. I see David at uh, the CEO of MongoDB. He's not a founder CEO. I, I just magnificent orchestration of growth and all the things I just said around transformation and building a company to last and embracing change. So I I think it's more the person. I've just been able to find it (laughs) at at sort of its earlier stages with the founders that I've been fortunate to work with, but no, it doesn't change it.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that because I do want to ask you about these boards because it's super impressive. These are serious boards I actually get a lot of questions from my former guests about boards and a theme that I have noticed a lot more amongst our CEOs is that they're reaching out to me asking if you know they've heard an episode of whether it's you or Cameron or an operator Chris Dagnan, if you know who that is was Chris part of Airtable for some reason I thought Chris was helping out Howie on the sales side at Airtable for a little while.
0: They do connect. And okay. I do believe as an advisor, yeah. he has connected yeah, several yes. times. Yes.
1: Great guy. Yeah. Uh, Amazing. Dear friend. Yeah. Just, the, just the man. Anyway, where they want go-to-market oriented, independent board members, which, you know, it kind of feels like what you're doing. And I get it. There was somewhere, I think it was a Forbes article or something, somewhere, where you were inclined to join the MongoDB board after considering many different options because you saw that the company valued your perspective. First of all, can you tell me what other boards were you considering? Is that...
0: Not at the time of MongoDB. I was considering a number of advisory roles at at that time, or I had been approached for a number of advisory roles. I was very heads down, sort of in Atlassian, very happy (laughs) with my job. I think with MongoDB, it was just such a tremendous fit which I found just based on what they were trying to do, their sort of online distribution model that they were building out, their ability to build out the cloud platform after having a lot of success in the on-prem world. And so there were so many parallels that it felt like a really great fit. And I think that's very important to me as well. Honestly, just asking some of of the team there, like what value can I bring to the table? Why me? And actually believing that you can make a difference and that you can find yourself fit in the mix of experiences and the diversity of skills on the board, that there's a place where you can fit into that and add value. So all of those things put together, it felt like the right move.
1: I have some very tactical questions for you on the board. So one is that you're soft-spoken, like I'm loud and obnoxious and annoying, you're like pretty much the opposite of me, which is like very disarming, very unassuming, quiet voice, I'm literally the, the exact worst opposite of you. In a board where there's very strong personalities around the table, Mongo, Zendesk, these are people from venture capital firms, these are just like very powerful people, right? Who sit on way more boards than you, generally speaking, or are the executives at the company who generally have much more context than you do on their given business. How do you pick your spots?
0: So all of those things, they definitely resonate. But one thing I'll tell you, and I don't know whether it's just, I I doubt it's just my sheer good fortune in this case, but there's an entire set of directors in these boardrooms at this point in time And in a company like MongoDB, where sort of inclusion and inclusion of different perspectives is so important, you actually see how it plays out in the intentionality that they build their board with. You actually see how it plays out with their onboarding so that they help you find that place. You can see them and the more senior members of the board, you can actually see them taking it upon themselves to train the next generation of directors. I found that true in MongoDB. I found that true in Zendesk. And I have found that most welcoming stance and one that helps you get that seat at the boardroom table. So I've been very, very fortunate about that. But I think another aspect of that is exactly what I talked about is I needed to feel comfortable that I could hit the ground running, that I could provide value for that specific business, that I could see patterns that I felt I would be able to add to immediately. And so I wanted to mention sort of their perspective and their inclusive and their intentionality because that was very core to making it work. But it was also the choices that I made about the boards. Right, like
1: when you ask them, like, hey, why are you choosing me? The question behind that question is to make sure that there's an opportunity where you're empowered yes. to add value.
0: Very where you're empowered to add value. And in both of these cases, right, that I'm on the boards of, I not only met other board members, but also met members of the management team to get sort of even their perspective. Sure. Because... I play their role in the companies that I work at. And so being able to look at that dynamic and understand the openness of the dialogue between the management and the board, all important components of making that call.
1: One of the things that I struggle with is, you know, sometimes you can treat the board as like advisors, right? Especially if you're coming in as an operator, they want to hear from you about the things that you've learned and help them avoid those mistakes, generally speaking. It's actually, I found, usually you're not telling them to make the right decisions, you're helping them avoid make the wrong decisions. Would you agree with that? Um. Okay, Okay. I, I am helping. I don't have nearly the experience you do, so I definitely don't know all the things to tell them what to do, but I have definitely seen enough to know some of the things that they should avoid. Sometimes I see someone going towards the iceberg, but I know that it's. They might have to ding it and learn from getting a dent in the ship. I can't just tell them. Does that make sense? Do you ever feel that yin and yang on the board where you feel like maybe there's a decision that you don't necessarily agree with, but because you're not in the company operating at the depth that they are, you kind of pull back a little bit?
0: I think that's definitely the board level discussions and the visibility that an operator has about the readiness that they have to be able to take on an initiative. There's a vast difference there, but you can always ask the question, right? You can always ask the question to get to the same place or to help, and they're seeking your perspective to begin with, which is why you're part of the board. And so I think taking that responsibility and that commitment to share your perspective and to learn enough to be able to share a strong perspective, I think that that's part of the job. And so I've not hesitated in saying when I think timing might not be right for something or the infrastructure is not ready for something or the team needs to be you know that there needs to be more hiring or whatever else it might be before something can take on that's the perspective you're trying to share when it comes to any particular thing that you can see in the horizon
1: do you ever get insecure about coming in after everyone most of the people on the board again were like either early stage investors when they like Watch the company grow up, or like they were all a little family together, growing up together as teenagers. They've been through more. They've built more resilience as a team. Now here comes Archana, and she just gets to stumble into like now the company's riding high. Do you ever think about that, or am I?
0: No, I, I do, I, I, I do. But not only in the context of being on the board and anything, right? And even at Airtable air or wherever it is, I think. Fortunately, I feel like I have a reasonably high degree of confidence in my ability to learn. And reasonably, and I'm not wedded to any of the tools that I have or I have utilized in the past. And so there's always the ability of, hey, I want to learn more and... I'm ready to absorb whatever that is. I'm ready to change a perspective. I'm ready to lean in where people need me to. So it's not only at the boardroom, but, but just about anywhere. I feel like I'm the latecomer <laughs> and I have catch up to do. And I've gotten comfortable with that feeling of I'm not going to know it all, but I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'll be able to help.
1: Great place to leave it. Are you hiring? I am. What are you hiring for?
0: We're hiring across all teams, all functions, but Any key the one roles. the one I want to definitely picture is we've recently opened our EMEA headquarters in UK and are hiring a lot of sales and support in UK as well. And so, I would love for anyone to get in touch with us, but even for jobs here.
1: What's the best way to get a hold of you?
0: Via LinkedIn, Archana Agrawal, but I'm also available at, at com.
1: What does the word grit mean to you?
0: The word grit, it means the ability to show up day after day, to get the job done, to do whatever it takes to complete a commitment.
1: Archana, thank you.
0: Thank you, Jobin.
1: That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify subscribing on Apple and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback. So feel free to email us grit at kleinerperkins.com.